violence. It wasn't the trivialization and voyeurism of shows like Big Brother or the glamorization of the occult in shows like Buffy and the Vampire Slayer or the overt promotion of non-Christian values in EastEnders and almost every other soap or in the caricature of Christians and ministers in the Vicar of Dibley with my namesake, the Reverend Geraldine Granger. Wasn't even the blasphemy of Jerry Springer, the opera. Now, while all these things did disturb me, what deeply disturbed me, what disturbed me the most, was the television news. Yet another suicide bomb in Iraq. 150 wounded, 60 killed. Court-martial of a female US soldier accused of abusing inmates in Baghdad's notorious Abu Ghraib jail. Someone finally, after seven years, charged with murdering 29 civilians in Omar in Northern Ireland. A young mother stabbed and left to die with her two-year-old child. And her attacker still at large. 180,000 people killed in Darfur in Sudan and still the violence goes on. And the events that are no longer even newsworthy. 35,600 people dying of starvation every day. 14 million AIDS orphans in Africa alone. 3 million people killed every year by malaria and Christians in unprecedented numbers persecuted, maligned and martyred for their faith in Jesus and so much more. And I wonder, why doesn't God do something? Why does he remain silent? How long must it be before he intervenes? How long, O oh Lord? 2,600 years ago, a man named Habakkuk asked the same question. He had no television, but all around him in his nation he could see anarchy and violence. And what made it worse, it was happening in the very nation that the one true God had chosen as his own to display his life and character. And as he looked around, it just weighed him down. In fact, the opening words of the little book that bears his name describes it as the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. And the word translated oracle, the Hebrew word, is literally the burden of Habakkuk. Used of a load that you put on a donkey that weighs it down. And that's how Habakkuk felt as he looked at his world, burdened, weighed down by what was happening in his world, in God's world. And so he cried out to God, how long, O oh Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look up injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Now, if this evening you claim to be a thinking, seeing Christian and don't have your head buried in the sand, then I would suggest that sometime you will stand where Habakkuk stood and you will pray what he prayed and ask what he asked. And if you are not a Christian this evening, then I would suggest to you that your problem is even more serious 
For in a world of injustice, if there is no ultimate injustice, no one to whom we are finally accountable, then life is a sad joke and you'd be better burying your head in the sand. But the Bible reveals a God who exists and a God who is not remote from our suffering world but speaks to it and speaks to those who honestly and painfully seek Him for answers. So what is the Lord's answer to these kind of questions? That's what I want to try and discover this evening with you as we continue this series, Major Lessons from the Minor Prophets. And we focus on this little book of Habakkuk under the title, How Long, O Lord? Now you'll need a Bible this evening and you'll need to keep it open right through because we're going to be singing and praying as part of what I'm saying. So if you can find a Bible in the pews, page 940. And we'll read as we go along. Now we know nothing about this man Habakkuk other than what we find in the book that bears his name. In fact, having grown up with Habakkuk, I finally went to university and the Scottish lecturer who lectured in theology, I discovered to my amazement that the name is actually pronounced Habakkuk. And I'd got the emphasis on the wrong syllable. Um, Unfortunately, old habits die hard, so you're still stuck with Habakkuk this evening. It doesn't matter. Who was he? No one really knows. The style of this book, and what may be in musical notations when we come to chapter 3, some people suggest he was a musician in the temple at Jerusalem. We don't know. All we can know for certain is what he actually said, which is recorded in this little book. And the language and detailed argument are not particularly easy to understand. But I simply want to turn your attention this evening to the fact that if you look at the little book in front of you, there are three chapters, one, two and three. And in these three chapters, I want us to trace a progression with Habakkuk. What we might call, not the Pilgrim's Progress, the famous book, but the Prophet's Progress. In chapter one, we find Habakkuk questioning. Chapter two, we find him waiting. And in chapter 3 we find him praying. And I want to focus on these three themes in turn and then after each one we'll respond either in song or prayer. Uh, Let's begin then with chapter 1 and the little word questioning. Habakkuk begins, as we've already seen, with an unrestrained protest in verses 2 to 4. How long, O Lord, must I call for help but you do not listen or cry out to you violence? but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralysed. Justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Now for reasons which will become apparent in a moment, it's generally agreed that Habakkuk prophesied towards nearly the turn of the 7th century before Christ. He lived in the southern part of Israel, which was called Judah. Uh, The northern half, Israel, had been obliterated out of existence over a century before by the invading Assyrian armies. And its people carried off into exile. And the reasons which had led to the demise of the north and God's judgment were all too apparent now in the southern part in Judah where Habakkuk lived. 
as a succession of bad kings had overseen the spiritual and moral decline of the nation. This had been arrested by the reign of a good king called Josiah. But now Josiah was dead. He'd been succeeded by his son, King Jehoiakim. And he returned the nation to the bad old days. So by the time Habakkuk prophesies here, the nation of Judah is in a state of near social anarchy. And his, his words here reveal a situation in which violence was endemic and justice, which should have restrained it and brought the perpetrators to account, was non-existent. Bad things were happening to good people and good things were happening to bad people. And Habakkuk sees what is happening in front of his eyes and he is appalled. But he has a much bigger problem because he's a believer in the one called the Lord. And so he's agitated. Let me summarise it. In view of widespread violence, wholesale injustice, Habakkuk asks the Lord, why don't you listen? Why don't you act? Now some churches and Christians give the impression, or even say openly, that such questions are out of order. That faith means never asking why. Nothing could be further removed from biblical truth. Ranging from the Psalms, to Job, to prophets like Habakkuk and his better known contemporary Jeremiah, even supremely to the Son of God, who in his time of greatest agony on a cross asked a question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And a relationship which can never be challenged and in which questions are suppressed is never a healthy relationship. And although human relationships always involve two imperfect people, while faith involves a relationship between a sinful person and a holy God, nonetheless, questions are not forbidden. What is important, though, is the motive behind the questions and the heart of the questioner. In the Bible Speaks Today commentary, which I recommend if you want to read a commentary on Habakkuk, David Pryor makes this distinction. He says, There has always been this important distinction between bitter cynicism and believing confrontation. One is a denial that refuses to believe, the other a belief that refuses to deny. One makes assertions and will not stay for an answer. The other makes assertions and will not move until there is an answer. God allows honest questions, but condemns pious platitudes. And so when Habakkuk asks his questions, instead of being struck dead by the Lord for his impudence in saying such things, the Lord responds to his questions. But what Habakkuk receives is an unexpected answer. Look at the next few verses, verse 5. Here's the Lord's answer to his question. Why don't you do anything? The Lord says to Habakkuk, Look at the nations and watch. Be utterly amazed. I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if, I, if you were told. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people, who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They're a feared and dreaded people. They're a law to themselves and promote their own honour. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture, swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. They sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own strength is their God. Yes, the Lord has heard Habakkuk's questions. And here is his answer. 
but it's not the answer that Habakkuk wanted to hear. The once great empire of Assyria is in terminal decline, but another empire is succeeding it. The Babylonians are now about to sweep all before them in the ancient east. And Habakkuk's nation, Judah, had pinned its hope for survival on an alliance with Egypt. But these were dashed when the Egyptian army was routed by the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, in a decisive battle at a place called Carchemish in 605 BC. And that's usually where we place Habakkuk, around about this time. And Habakkuk lives in these turbulent times. And the Lord tells him, watch Habakkuk, watch the news, it's unfolding right before your eyes, in an utterly amazing way that no one would have expected. Yes, the Lord has seen and heard what is going, to, what is going on in Judah. And the wheels of his justice are already set in motion. The Lord is raising up the Babylonians as his instruments of justice on his chosen people, Judah. There are no historical accidents. Everything happens by the Lord, by the will of the Lord of time and history. Notice what he says. Habakkuk, I'm already working. I'm already raising up. Present continuous. I will act. And the instrument I'm going to use to bring justice on the people of Judah is Babylon. A ruthless and cruel people that do not even know the Lord and when they defeat you they will attribute it to their own strength, their own gods, their own power. Guilty men, verse 11, whose own strength is their God. Now, if, like Habakkuk, you believe in this same Lord who is Lord of history, such questions are difficult, but the answers are often harder. Rather than answering your question, they merely raise fresh questions. And this is so with Habakkuk. For notice, thirdly and finally, in this opening section, that Habakkuk responds and he has an unresolved problem. Look at verse 12. He says, O oh Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God! My Holy One, we will not die. O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O Rock, you have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow those more righteous than themselves? You've made men like fish in the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net. He burns incest to his dragnet. For by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? Habakkuk has got his answer. God has appointed the Babylonians to execute justice and to punish his people Judah. But Habakkuk doesn't like it. He asks, how can the Lord use such wicked instruments on those who are more righteous? And his great worry concerns the future. What about the future, he says? Will nobody stop these people? Will they never stop their march? Verse 17. Even more worrying, will the Lord's people ever survive this? Is there any future for God's people? Now, we really need to recognise what a terrible situation this is for a God-fearing man like Habakkuk. Imagine that you'd lived all your life like a preacher, like I attempt to be, preaching God's word, and then things happen in history which make no sense. And God seems to be doing something that is contrary to his character. And what about all these promises about the temple standing forever, inviolable? The land of Israel given for all generations to God's people. 
And now the land and the city and the temple are threatened by a ruthless enemy. And so he comes to the Lord and instead of giving him a pattern, so the Lord says, quite right, this is my plan. You will see the Babylonians march through, raise Jerusalem to the ground, destroy the nation of Israel, carry the people off into captivity. What now are the promises of God? Will it never end? Has God got a future for his people? Now, such questions are always asked by serious believers in such days. I remember many years ago having a very interesting conversation with the Bishop of Karachi when we worked in Pakistan. He's a, a, a very learned scholar in Arabic and Islamic history as well as being a fine Christian. He said something interesting, I've always remembered, he said, the most difficult issue I've tried to come to terms with as a believer is, why did the Lord allow Islam to be raised up in the 7th century and to march through North Africa and all of Europe right to the gates of France and Spain for 7 centuries almost unchecked and all the churches are wiped out. Have you thought about that? Where is God in all those centuries? Imagine you're a believer and you see it happen. And at times like these you turn to a book like Habakkuk Again, interesting, I was talking this week to Stuart Sinclair, one of our deacons, who's done a particular study of the First World War and the effect it had on the congregation in Charlotte Chapel in those dark days at the beginning of the 20th century. So it's been very interesting to me. He said, as he looked through the record, our, our church magazine, which in those days was a record of all the sermons that were preached, he said, people constantly preach from the book of Habakkuk in those days. Now, I'll guarantee that many of you particularly the younger generation, have probably never heard a sermon on the book of Habakkuk, except this one. And maybe we'll need to turn to the book of Habakkuk again. For the force of secularism threatened to swamp the Church of Jesus Christ in the West. Oh, it's growing in other places. But in the West it seems to roll on unchecked. And serious question, Christians ask serious questions and we ask, how long, O oh Lord? How long? These are questions Habakkuk asked and we should be asking. And to be honest, as we look at the state of the church in our nation, the church that bears the name of Jesus Christ, I believe apart from God's mercy, we face God's judgment. We fail to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And where a church fails to be what God intends, then the book of Revelation tells us, rather than give a wrong impression, he will remove the lampstand altogether. As happened to those churches in Revelation, which are now subsumed in Turkey. So as we conclude this opening section, we need to ask God to have mercy on his church and on us. So let's sing a song together, which... Still on page 941. Second chapter in the second theme, which I've called Waiting. As you look at the text in front of you, you'll notice that Habakkuk, unlike the first questions he asks, receives no immediate answer. But there is a, answer, there is a reason for this. There is an immediate answer to the first complaint because as we've seen, God is already answering. He has already set the Babylonians in motion. But God's answer to the second question, how can you use people like these Babylonians and will they go on forever, is not so nearly immediate. 
And in view of this, what is essential is to wait both for an answer and for the answer. Most people think that waiting is a waste of time. Why are we waiting, those at the chant? But Habakkuk knows why he's waiting and so he doesn't give up in despair or continue to complain. Instead, like a watchman on the city ramparts, he's prepared to wait and see as he scans the horizon looking for an answer from the Lord. Look therefore at verse 1. Patient expectation. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complain and his patience is finally rewarded as an answer from heaven is received one that is not just for Habakkuk but one that is to be proclaimed to all by a herald public proclamation verse 2 then the Lord replied write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it the true answer, says the Lord, will finally be revealed in God's perfect timing with no delay. Verse 3, final revelation. For the revelation, the answer to the question, awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. The answer to Habakkuk's question and the question that all believers ask why do wicked people and wicked nations seem to prosper is to take the long-term view. The answer speaks, says the Lord, of the end. The end of time. The day of God's appointing. The day of ultimate judgment which will determine the eternal destiny of every person and nation. And if this is the case, if this is the focus, then the most important thing for every person and nation to know is what will determine your fate on the day of judgment. And in the key verse 4, we discover that there are two ways to live. Look at verse 4, it's a very important verse. The first way to live is the way of pride. Verse 4, the Lord says, See, he is puffed up, his desires are not upright. He, of course, is Babylon. F.F. F. Bruce writes, There are those whose heart is not right in relation to God. Instead of trusting in Him, they hold aloof in a spirit of self-sufficiency, trusting in themselves. Their souls are inflated. They lack either substance or stability, and a pinprick will make them collapse. Now, the Babylonians are the supreme example of human pride. The extreme example, verse 11, chapter 1 that we read. Whose strength is their God? These Babylonians live without God, worshipping idols they've made to serve their own desires, living as they please, believing they're a law unto themselves. But I simply want to say this evening that all of us are afflicted with the same malaise. This is a problem not just for Babylon, but for everyone. If you know the Bible, it was a problem of our first parents way back in the Garden of Eden when they rebelled against God and aspired to be put in first place in the place that only God should have, taken in by the tempting offer to become like God. And of all of us inherit that same trait, living in rebellion against God. And at times it appears that we and others get away with it. That God fails to act. You might be living like that now. Total disregard to God, living your life your way, putting yourself at the centre of your life, 
and you might say to me, Peter, you don't know my life, I've got everything made, it's fine, I'm getting away with it, if there is a God, he's certainly not done anything to me and I'm doing absolutely fine at the moment. And I simply say yes at the moment. But in the long term, all of us face judgment. And in the case of the Babylonians, that judgment is described in the verses that follow. I won't read them, you can read them yourselves because of time. But there are a series of sections that all begin with the word woe. You see that in verse 6? Woe. Verse 9, woe to him. And it goes through all the traits that characterise the Babylonians and the Lord says they will be paid in kind as they have treated others, so they themselves will be treated. They face ultimately God's judgement. In God's time. It's very interesting that around 70 years after Habakkuk spoke these words, the last king of the Babylonians, a king named Belshazzar, was enjoying a drunken orgy and feast with all his pals in a huge banqueting hall. And they were just living life to the full, celebrating how good they were and how powerful they were and how they were their own gods. You can read the story in the book of Daniel. As the feast goes on, suddenly on the wall behind them, a human hand appears with fingers and writes some words on the wall and we read that the king was shaken to his core. He was petrified. And he calls for Daniel. Who's Daniel? He's one of the Jews that has been carried off into exile. And the words are meeny, meeny, tekel says, what do they mean? And this is what he says. Daniel tells him, this is what these words mean. Meaning God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balance in the scales and found one thing. Peres, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And that very night Belshazzar dies. And his kingdom is swept away in a moment. Babylon is no more. Babylon is a picture of human pride. If you know the Bible, in the very last book of the Bible, the final great battle is between the city of God and the city of Babylon. don't have time to look at it all, but in Revelation 18, very interesting words. Woe, woe, O great city, O Babylon, city of power, in one hour your doom has come. And God's judgments may seem very slow. We might seem to get away with it. Or those that have hurt us may seem to get away with it. But it's very certain. Frederick von Lagau, the 17th century German poet, famously put it, Though the mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceeding small. Though with patience he stands waiting, with exactness grinds he all. And that is the first way to live. It's the way of pride. Putting yourself at the centre. And you may be living that way this evening. There is only one alternative course, which is also expressed in the second half of Habakkuk 2 verse 4. What it says. It's the way of faith. See, is puffed up, his desires are not right, that's the way of pride. But the righteous will live by his faith. In the previous chapter, we read that Habakkuk protested that the Lord was allowing these Babylonians to swallow up those more righteous than themselves. That is, he says, the people of Israel, they're a lot better than these terrible wicked Babylonians. So why, God, do you allow wicked people to swallow up those who are not so wicked? 
But the fact is in God's judgment, there are no people who are more righteous than others. The psalmist says there is no one who does good, not even one. Psalm 14 verse 1. And if that is the case, there is only one way by which a person might be put right in God's eyes, which is what righteous means. And that is, says Habakkuk, through faith. Trusting in God's provision to make you what you could never be by your own efforts. And what Habakkuk and all the prophets looked forward to was when God would make that available. And that was fulfilled in the coming of Jesus, God's Son. When he bore the wrath of God, the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous, to make us what we could never be. So that through him, through his righteousness, we might become righteous. And so in the great book of Romans, right in the first chapter, the Apostle Paul talks about this good news that's for everyone now, not just for Jews, but for Gentiles. We studied it some years ago, it's still on the internet, if you're interested in that series, Good News for Bad People, we called it. Now notice what Paul says in Romans 1, it's on the screen, turn to it if you want to, in Romans 1, 16 to 17. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is from faith, that is by faith, from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Where is it written? Habakkuk 2 verse 4. You can see the same theme in Galatians 3 as well. So I ask you this evening, are you following the way of pride? Or are you following the way of faith? Do you think on that day of judgment you're going to stand before God and say, Lord, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm more righteous than Joseph Stalin, Hitler, Saddam Hussein, you know, list a few people that you think are worth. Oh, oh, my next door neighbour as well, Lord. She's not a very nice woman either. No, God says there is none righteous. No, not one. All of sin falls short of the glory of God. There is only one way by which you can be put right with God, and that is trusting in God's provision in Jesus Christ. It is righteousness by faith in Him. This is such a key. Well, this is what the gospel is all about. It is such a key, important doctrine. And if you are trusting in Christ, then what do you need to know? You need to continue to live by faith. To continue as you began. You'll see if you've got the NIV here, I think it's in the Pubams as well, there's a footnote to verse 4. And it says, but the righteous will live by his faith. Can you see if you've got good eyes, that little D? And at the bottom it says faithfulness. The word can mean faithfulness as well. In other words, the righteous will live by his faithfulness. Either his faithfulness referring to God's faithfulness to him or his faithfulness in continuing as he began. So, when faced with situations like Habakkuk faced, where the world seems to be going wrong and you wonder, is there any point in being a Christian where my neighbours seem to get away with everything and their godless lifestyles and I'm trying to live for Christ and I'm just suffering for it? What's the point of all this? Maybe I'll give up being a Christian. Who knows? Maybe you're sitting here this evening and you think, this is, I've come here this evening, it's the last time I'm going to come to church. I'm going to just give it all up because it doesn't seem any point anymore. I don't seem to be making any profit from this. My life's hard. I've been betrayed by people, hurt by people, and they've got away with it and here I am, trying to live for God. What's the point? Now interestingly, Habakkuk 2.4 is quoted again in the New Testament. 
in the book of Hebrews, which is written to Christians from a Jewish background who were tempted to go back on their faith. And the writer, no one knows who wrote the book, this is what he says in Hebrews 10. Persevere in faith. So do not throw away your confidence, it will be richly rewarded. Don't throw it all away. You need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I'll not be pleased with him. Where's he quoting from? Habakkuk chapter 2. And so the cry of the martyrs in the last chapter, the last book of the Bible, the martyrs cry under the altar of God, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Revelation 6 verse 10 will finally be answered and Habakkuk, like Isaiah before him, assures us of the final outcome. In the midst of all um, those woes that you see there in chapter 2, that's the lovely verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Two ways to live. Now, if this is the case, it is the height of folly to do what Babylon did, which is to trust in yourself and man-made idols. Instead, the right response is the one that we began with. The right response, if God is in his temple, is, shh. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. This is the God that we worship. The sovereign Lord, but the wonderful God of love, who has sent his Son, to pay the price we could never pay so that we might be forgiven and restored might be put right with God justified by faith this is the good news the gospel of Jesus Christ let's sing about that how deep chapter 3 questioning waiting finally praying prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigionoth no one knows what that means, probably as the footnote says, possibly a musical term. And in this final chapter we see two themes. First of all, looking back on the past in the first 15 verses. As Habakkuk recalls God's mighty acts in the past and asks him to act again. We've just sung this. Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. O Lord, Renew them in our day, in our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. And in vivid images, he recounts God's powerful and dramatic interventions in the past on behalf of his people, Israel, in particular the exodus from Egypt, the events at the Red Sea when Israel was saved and Pharaoh and his army destroyed. Let's just read them, they're wonderful words, and you'll see his reaction at the end. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens. His praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled. The age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. I saw the tents of Cushion in distress. The dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? You uncovered your bow and you called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by the deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens. 
at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth, in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one, literally your Messiah. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness, stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter as gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. And having prayed that, having seen what kind of God this is, he then returns to his present situation, where he began, facing up to the future in the remaining verses. He began the prayer standing in awe of God. Now he literally trembles before the Lord. Verse 16, I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, decay crept into my bones, my legs trembled. Very interesting question. Have you ever trembled literally in God's presence before God's power and holiness? Trembling before the Lord. Yet despite this, despite what he knows is going to happen, that he will see with his own eyes, experience himself, he still affirms his trust in the Lord. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come upon the nation invading us. He says it's going to happen, but I'm going to live through it. He's prepared to wait for God. And then these wonderful words, the final verses of this little book. He says, you'll trust in the Lord no matter what happens. Though the fig tree does not burden, there are no grapes on the vines. Though the olive crop fails, the fields produce no food. Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. It's a remarkable position to reach, isn't it? You can say to God, if everything goes wrong in my life, I will still rejoice in the Lord. Everything that I live for is taken away. I will still rejoice in God, my Saviour. The American commentator Palmer Robertson comments, So a book beginning with complaint and distress ends in joy. Faith triumphs in life despite calamities. Songs in the night anticipate the glad arrival of the eternal dawn in which the faithful shall receive their ultimate vindication. And when you've got that kind of faith, it enables you, in spite of life and all its circumstances, in spite of what you'll see on the news tomorrow morning, who knows what it will be, it enables you to have what I would call a sure-footed faith. See the last verse? The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and enables me to go on the heights. Have you seen a deer or mountain goat skipping along over those treacherous rocks? Sure-footed. When you've got that kind of faith and confidence in God, it's a sure-footed faith that allows you to keep going, keep moving, even when things are going wrong. But I tell you this, you cannot sing that kind of song until you've asked those kind of questions. And I hope this evening it's enabled us to ask the questions. But also to sing the song. And I tell you something else that's even more wonderful. If you're a Christian, you have a better song than Habakkuk could ever sing. 
you have a greater confidence than Habakkuk could ever have. For you've experienced the full extent of God's love in giving his son. That great chapter in Romans 8, whenever circumstances go wrong in your life, just get your Bible and read Romans 8 slowly and carefully. As it comes to the end, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Will he not also freely with him give us all things? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? God has justified us through his son. This great Christian confidence, with this we finish. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, as it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We can consider this sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, not anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is Christian confidence. And all God's people said, Amen.